Hello and welcome to our second year anniversary show of Blu-ray Boutique, formerly known as the Criterion Collectors. I am your co-host Rosalie Lewis. And I'm your other co-host Tim Rosenberger. And today on the show we are tackling Twin Peaks. Both Tim and I had not watched the show or Twin Peaks Firewalk with me before prep for this episode. So very excited to dive into this. People who've watched the other episodes, we're not going to be talking about the third season or any of the other extra stuff. Just right now, we're going to talk about the first two seasons and the feature film, Firewalk With Me. Yeah, so for me, I can say I've been a, a David Lynch fan for quite a while. And this always felt like a big blind spot mm-hmm. in his filmography for me. At the same time, it's it was almost intimidating to try to start so much later because I knew it had such a cult following and, you know, it's a certain amount of, like, time you have to devote to watching it. It's no, like, Sopranos or something like that, <laughs> but it's still a certain time commitment. And so it always just felt like, well, you know, at some point I know I'll watch it, but I just haven't gotten around to it yet. So I was excited for an excuse to finally... Mm-hmm knock this one off my list of things I needed to watch. And I know for you, you'd seen some Lynch, but not maybe as big of a Lynch aficionado as some people. But what do you think was keeping you from having watched it up until now? Well, a similar thing to, I probably mentioned this when we did the last anniversary episode, is just that because David Lynch is obviously, well, slightly odd person, but also a guy who makes odd films most of the time. So that kind of kept me from watching his films in general, because I've, as I've mentioned before, I'm not terribly into really weird films. I've gotten more into them the past few years. So that was always worrying me. But watching the four we talked about last year, um, Eraserhead, Elephant Man, uh, Blue Velvet, and Mulholland Drive, I was surprised by how much I liked those and got into them and was kind of okay with even some of the weirdness and stuff and how in some ways they weren't as weird as I would expect and all that stuff. But Twin Peaks, um, I thought would be more in the line of something like Eraserhead, which is, you know, very, very strange. So that was kind of keeping me away. And I think the reason for for that idea of it was because I think most of the, when you see like pictures or GIFs or shared clips or whatever on Twitter or online or whatever, they tend to be of the weird stuff. So I just thought that the whole thing would be kind of this weird kind of mind bending type show that would just be very odd. And it gets into those types of things at certain points in the show, but um, it's really not that for the most part. Um, so that was kind of keeping me awake because I was just worried about that, and I just like oh, I don't know if I would really want to get into that. But um, like a lot of Lynch's work, I was surprised by how much I kind of got into it and enjoyed it, and how it was different than what I expected. Um, I think Lynch continues to surprise me with um, how much he's becoming one of my favorite filmmakers with uh, over the past uh, two years. Yeah, I will say there was one time of I don't know maybe six years ago or so that I attempted to start watching Twin Peaks, and I started the first episode and granted it was kind of late at night. So I was a little tired and I didn't realize that the premiere episode was going to be like a movie length episode. So it was a big time commitment. And I do remember initially being a little put off by the tone of it because it's, it's very heightened is probably Mm. the the best way I can put it. It's very melodramatic. Right. And it almost feels like, at times like a soap opera and I think Mm -hmm. intentionally so and we can talk about that but I remember thinking oh this isn't really quite what I was thinking it would be and I know I should probably like power through but I'm just not feeling right now right so I set it aside and I knew I would come back to eventually and 
I will say in, in preview of what we're going to be talking about that I was very happy to see that there's a good balance in the show of mood and energy and it's not all like at that same level. Mm-hmm. So while there are certain elements that are a little over the top or, you know, at times do veer into that melodramatic tone, it's not all like that. So if you're like me and you watched part of the pilot a long time ago and you're like, eh, it's a little too much. I think you should stick with it or at least watch the first handful of episodes to get the tone of it because it's not always going to be in that vein. Or at least, so, yeah, or at least watch. I mean, the first season is only eight episodes long, so it's not. Right. I mean, so it's like, you know, seven, 46, 47 minute episodes and then one hour and a half or so one. So it's not a lot. So and if you don't like what's in the first season, then. Well, you probably won't like what's in the rest of it. So right. It's kind of a nice... Um, um, it's easy enough to opt out. At yeah. That yeah. And it's not... It. Yeah. The, the first season is pretty breezy, really. So. Yeah. Yeah. After that first episode, the episodes are only 40 minutes long and they go by pretty quick. into it right so just to give a little structure of what this episode is going to be like we are going to talk about the first two seasons of Twin Peaks TV show the original run and then we're going to dive into Twin Peaks Firewalk with me the movie that came out after that show we are not going to get into as you mentioned season three the return which um, aired much later and I am excited to catch up with that at some point but I haven't yet So we won't be getting into that. And then in terms of spoilers, we are not going to spoil the who killed Laura Palmer of it all. But we will probably at at some point get into some potentially spoilery territory. So we'll try to um, mention that before we get into it. So if you have not watched any Twin Peaks, still fine to listen to the episode. We'll try to warn you off if there's anything that's going to veer too far into the spoiler territory. All right. So Twin Peaks, the TV show, aired. It premiered on ABC back in 1990 and it is created by David Lynch who we've already mentioned and Mark Frost and it's an interesting blend of a few different genres I would say it pulls from kind of the like we talked about a little bit of the soap opera drama um, but also it has some element of mystery to it I think there's a lot of film noir mm-hmm. injected into Definitely. it some horror elements mm-hmm. too and um, also just a, a really kind of like small town feeling, which is kind of cozy, right? Like it, it's it's like a cozy mystery, but then there are these like weird horror or offbeat elements that kind of like throw a little twist into it. Well, so the- um, um, it's and it's very, I would say it's very, if you've people have seen Blue Velvet, it, for me, when I was watching, it seemed very reminiscent of that in certain yes. In certain ways, but in terms definitely of, agree. In terms of tone and other things, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, so let's talk about the main characters, right? If you've heard anything at all about Twin Peaks, you probably know that it stars Kyle MacLachlan as uh, Agent Dale Cooper. He's an FBI agent who is sent to the small town of Twin Peaks, very picturesque place, to solve a murder. 
And it seems to be at least the second in a series of murders that they are investigating that may or may not be connected. But in this case, it's the murder of Laura Palmer, who was the homecoming queen and, you know, very popular and well-liked, but also seemed to be a bit troubled, maybe led a bit of a double life. And so the film, or the, I should say the TV show, but it's, it feels film-like at times. The TV show follows that investigation, but there's a lot of other storylines and characters that come into it. So I would say Kyle MacLachlan is sort of the, the protagonist of the show in a lot of ways, but we also have characters that are very important to it, such as um, those that are played by the likes of uh, Majin Amick, Lara Flynn Boyle, uh, Peggy Lipton, James Marshall, Jack Nance, who is, of course, from Eraserhead, is a, a good character mm-hmm. in this as well. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of other things going on that may or may not be tied into this murder. But basically, like you said, it's sort of along the same lines of a blue velvet where it's a small town where everything seems picturesque. But if you start peeling back the layers, there's definitely something wrong. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the basic setup. And I guess right off the top, what was your initial impression of that first episode? Because we kind of teased it a little bit, but were you immediately hooked or were you kind of still trying to get your footing? No, I, was, I mean, it wasn't. I mean, I kind of liked it more as some of the episodes went on, but I, uh, but I still liked it a lot when I first watched that one. I will say they pack a lot into that first episode, even more so. Like, even because uh, we should say the first episode of the first season, the first episode of the second season are both double length, so like an hour mm-hmm. and 34 minutes or whatever. But even like the second episode, even the movie, which we'll get to, didn't seem as jam-packed with stuff as the first episode of the show did, maybe just because it's trying to establish so much and so many characters, and, and while characters are certainly added as time goes on uh, to a certain extent, it was packing a lot of stuff. But no, it was certainly interesting, and I th- and um, one thing you get very early on is that it is a very much an ensemble show. I mean, yes, Kyle McLaughlin is kind of, if there is a main character, he is the main character, but it is still very much an ensemble thing. And hell, Kyle McLaughlin doesn't even appear until, like, 42 minutes into the thing so yeah. i mean it takes its time and even when they introduce him they don't give him a grid big introduction he just they just cut to him in the car arriving in town but no i liked it most of the show is not like a racer head weird or like parts of Mulholland drive weird but it does have this kind of strange tone to it and people act kind of strangely like they do in blue velvet or something or people aren't as weirded out by certain things as maybe people would be in real life, and right because some uh, some of the stuff Dale is into is is he's in really into Tibetan stuff and meditation and dreams and visions and a lot of that stuff for the most part is just kind of like okay sure we'll go along with that and again there's odd characters like uh, there's a lady called the Log Lady mm-hmm. um, played by an actress whose name I'm forgetting off the top of my head but she was um, she worked on a racer head she's been with Lynch doing stuff with Lynch for a long time and um, she was Jack Nance's wife through um, the production of Eraserhead. But most of it is pretty straightforward and quote-unquote normal. And I like the fact that it was... I'm really into mysteries. It's one of my favorite genres. So this unpacking of this mystery, this strange mystery was very intriguing to me. And it was surprising how... Were you surprised by um, how funny the show could be? I was surprised, though I shouldn't have been because Lynch definitely always has an offbeat sense of humor that comes through. But yeah, it was much funnier than I was expecting. And I know in having read a little bit about people's reactions to, you know, the show, some people were annoyed by that. But I think it's its charm, right? I love that 
you know, you have Dale who's obsessed with coffee and <laughs> pie, and he's constantly praising it, you oh, know. Um, I love Lucy, who's the, you know, the girl at the front desk at the police station that has to give way more detail than anybody needs and has lots of quirks. Oh, she's so And cute. I love, you know, Andy, who's uh, a deputy who doesn't seem to be very good at handling difficult situations. He breaks down in tears a lot. He throws up. He just, you know, doesn't seem like he's cut out for work in a cop capacity, but he also has his heroic moments. There's just all these different little characters. And then you also meet these high school students, right? Because she was a high school, Laurel was a high school student. I guess senior, these high technically. Students who all kind of act older than they are. They mm-hmm. dress like they're from the 40s. <laughs> like, it feels very throwback in that way. Oh, no, I think even in some of the dialogue and some of the tone, it, I felt very much in certain ways like I was watching a movie from, like, the 30s or 40s or something in terms of some of the ways people were acting. I don't know if that yeah. was if that was a note that David Lynch got or something gave to people or him and Mark Frost, but um, very much was the feel I was getting at certain points. Yeah. I mean, if, if you think about, so one of the characters is James Hurley and he was Laura's secret lover. He also within the first episode, we find out has been falling in love with Donna Hayward, Laura's best friend. And the feeling yeah. is mutual. So those two are, are getting together, but James Hurley is and he's played by somebody named James. I'm forgetting his last name at the moment. Um, I think it's James Wallace. But anyway, he definitely they were trying to go for like a James Dean thing, right? He's on a motorcycle. He's very broody. Like he has this pouty look to him. Huh. He wears leather jackets. Huh. Like he's at times a little insufferable, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But you know, like he's very much straight out of that era of like rebel without a cause, right? Mm-hmm. So again, it's like this throwback to a time that maybe many people see through this sentimentalized or like romanticized thing of like, Oh, back in the old days, it was so much better and small towns are so much better. And this is, you know, kind of unpacking those myths and saying, okay, even agent Cooper is excited and like think small, small towns and twin peaks particularly is the best. He gets excited about the trees. He has to know what kind of trees Mm -hmm. these are, but he also is, you know, finding himself disillusioned at times of, of some of his notions of what this town is really like. So I enjoyed all of those different elements that were really set up in that very first episode. And within the first episode, we already have like a fairly long list of suspects of who could have done it, which I liked. Probably my favorite joke in the whole thing. And the thing that I was most surprised is how funny it was when I get, and the first time I probably got that it was at certain points, the show was going to be genuinely funny, especially when it came to Dale was, in the second or third episode, it begins with Dale doing some exercises in his. Uh, he's staying at uh, in the in, during the length of the show. He is staying at a hotel called the Great Northern. The owner of which is friends with Laura Palmer's dad, who the the her dad is a, a, his lawyer, the guy's lawyer, and the guy also has a daughter who gets into some trouble and is whatever. Anyway, um, he's staying at this uh, um, at this hotel during his stay in Twin Peaks, and uh, the second or third episode begins with him doing some exercises in his room there. And he, uh, throughout the show, he, he he makes messages on a tape recorder to some person who, as far as I know, is never explained. Even in the unless she's explained in Twin Peaks: The Return, uh, we never explained who the hell this person is. We just know she's called Diane. Uh, we don't know if that's a real person. It seems like it's somebody back at the FBI that he's sending messages to. But anyway, he's talking to her, and he will often use that as an exposition. It's kind of almost an old, a new way of doing, like, film noir narration, I found. Mm-hmm. 
But anyway, he is talking to her and he says, Diane, it struck me again earlier this morning. There are two things that continue to trouble me, and I'm speaking now not only as an agent of the Bureau, but also as a human being. What really went on between Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys? And who really pulled the trigger on JFK? And he goes into this whole, whole thing. It was totally random. Yeah. It has nothing to do with anything. But it was just really funny. And I generally like just burst out laughing because it was just hilarious. And there's different points of that, too, where you have great jokes and stuff. Yeah. They use that narrative device very, very well of having him kind of talk into the tape recorder to Diane. But it's really for it's for our benefit, and mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. And I hope that season three doesn't reveal I Diane. I think it's perfect never getting to see her or know anything about her. I was slightly worried that the movie was going to do that, and it didn't. So Lynch yeah. knows what he's doing. First, some of that melodrama and soap opera stuff um, I did take issue with, and I was like, eh, I, don't, eh, I don't know how this is going to work. And I took issue with some of the weird characters and, like, the secretary and then the deputy and all this stuff but I, again i got acclimated to all that st- sort of stuff and the kind of the style of the show and the and the and the acting and the tone of it but um it does have to be said while i do have respect for these actors and lynch and the writers and all that stuff they were trying to do did you at some points at some points i did kind of feel people were maybe some of the actors were being a bit too over the top <laughs> and i questioned some of their acting i mean especially when some of the yelling was going on and less convincingly done ways i just wanted to keep yelling acting right because it was just so overdone at some point i will say so one of the characters is bobby bobby was laura's boyfriend um Mm. and also was dealing cocaine secretly Mm -hmm. and he has a lot of things going on Anytime Bobby was on screen, Andy and I dubbed him Ham Sandwich. (laughs) i didn't find him as but i actually found um the other person you mentioned james to be a little bit more stilted and um not as convincing, especially when he's doing really big dramatic stuff. I was like, okay. Yeah. There's one scene in the second season between James and Donna, the characters, where they have this little discussion, emotional discussion about a thing that's happened, and then he goes, rides off on his bike, and the music was swelling so much, and the emotions were so high, and all this stuff. I'm just like, okay, this is. Well, yeah, this is a I mean, bit I much. Bobby more, and I, I kind of cooled on James, because originally James, I think, is set up to be a little bit more of like. The heartthrob, but then, mm-hmm. I don't know, he, yeah, he, he got on my nerves later on. But Bobby is more entertaining of the two. And even though sometimes he was a little over the top, he was much less self-serious and more just like, he was hammy, but not in a, a bad, yeah. painful way, just like in kind of a funny way. Yeah, and I will, I guess I will say that mo- I think all the adults are fine. I think it's mostly with some of the, understandably, with some of the younger actors who I think are struggling a little bit, mainly the guys, surprisingly. I will say um, one actor, uh, some of the actors who, um, we, can't ha- we can't highlight all the actors because it would take too long. Uh, I think two actors that I really admired in it. One actor, uh, Don S. Davis, who plays uh, Major Briggs, who is Bobby's uh, Air Force father and he does this weird thing which he doesn't do in other things he does where i don't even know exactly what he's even doing i think it's a mixture of the dialogue he he's been he's given but it's in terms of how he's delivering it he does it in this very stylistic but kind of oh, i don't even know how to describe it but he delivers dialogue he his his dialogue is in a very specific delivery in a very specific style that i can't really pin exactly how he's doing it but it was very just interesting and gave his character this very interesting 
flavor to it, and I liked also the fact that despite he's this military guy, they don't do the annoying cliches of him being very emotionally repressed and tough and all this stuff. He's actually one of the more kind of um, more emotionally um, healthy and good people in the show, which I really liked. I realize you experience an ongoing disinclination to enter fully into meaningful exchange. This leads to stalemate. A desire on my part to force certain wisdom upon you. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it's the best course available. Like, son, don't be afraid. We'll all be there together. But the other person um, was uh, Dear Jack Nance, who is probably given, his character is probably given the least, uh, except for the log lady, is probably given the least to do in terms of the characters in the show, but who I loved. He has a, I don't remember how he delivered stuff in like stuff like Blue Velvets and Eraserhead, he doesn't actually say very much, but in the Trim Peaks of the show, he also had, like, he came up with the best line deliveries for things ever. I just loved seeing him have any sort of dialogue. It was just, and of course, I loved his character in general. He was one of the better people in in terms of moral character (laughs) in the show, and I really loved that. But he had, like, this one line that I've thought about. It's like a nothing line. It's a nothing, it doesn't mean anything. But like the one point, Jack Nance, he's asks his wife, "Have you seen my tackle box?" And the way he says "tackle box," I've thought about that like constantly for the past like two weeks. <laughs> I have no idea why. It's just the way he says it. Like I've never heard. I just and he has that throughout the thing. He just delivers things in the best ways possible. That yeah. I wish he was in the show uh, more than he is because I love his character. But anyway, those two characters are probably two of my uh, favorites. I really did enjoy both of them. Briggs in particular, like that character was fantastic. And I was so excited anytime he was on screen. And how can you not love Pete Martell? He was really fun as well. And I also remember a line of his also related to fishing, as it turns out, um, (laughs) where he says something along the lines of, There are many cures for a broken heart, but nothing quite like a trout's leap in the moonlight. And I just love that, you know, I mean, he's he's a simple guy with simple pleasures. But I think because of that, you know, some of the other characters like his wife don't give him enough credit for his intelligence because he comes across as also a very intelligent guy. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, he definitely helps ground the show. People like him kind of help ground the show because there are some of these more extreme characters that without these normal kind of balancey persons might veer off too far. But yeah, really good call-outs on those. A couple of my faves that are not, like, the main, main characters, but I really enjoyed the local deputy played by Michael Horse, who is Hawk, and he is, you know, just a, a good guy to have on your side, let's say. Um, he is a tracker, he's Native American, and he knows the woods very well, and he's good at kind of finding out information from whatever sources he might have, and he, he tends to show up in the nick of time, and... I just really liked his character. He's He doesn't have a lot to say either, but he is, it seems, kind of like a wise person to have around and just, again, a good one to have in your corner. I also loved the character of Jerry Horn, who plays mm. Ben Horn's younger and perhaps more um, <laughs> neurotic brother, I guess. Mm. Uh, so Ben Horn is the one that owns the hotel. He's mm-hmm. also the father of Audrey and Audrey is a classmate of Laura's. They were never particularly close, but now she is feeling a little bit of a sense of obligation of like, maybe she should have taken more of an interest and maybe she should have 
you know, notice some of the signs. And so she's so, sort of doing her own like side investigation. She also has, you know, kind of uh, a crush on Agent Cooper. And so, yeah, she's she's kind of doing her own thing. But her dad is Ben Horn, who owns the hotel. And then her uncle Jerry is um, he just shows up and he always makes a, an entrance, whether it's with a, a weird smoked cheese pig that he's eating uh-huh. or like a strange sandwich. It does always seem like it's either food related or he has like a big group of people with him that are making a big ruckus. But um, he's he's always a source of humor. So I enjoyed his character quite a bit. And um, we should probably also mention two other FBI agents who come in and out of the show, one more than the other. Um, one is play, one is Albert, who's kind of this expert at kind of um, coroner-type person. Um, yeah, he's into forensics. Forensics, and who's played by Miguel Ferrer. And there's the other one, Gordon Cole, who is played by the man himself, David Lynch, who has... Albert is... While they do kind of... I wouldn't say soften, but they while they do make him a bit more likable a little ways in, he is... Especially early on, he is very rough, as as um, Dale puts it. He's not very, he's not very really a people person, yeah. and he pisses people's off. <laughs> yeah, he pisses people off very easily. What the hell kind of a two bit operation are they running out of his treehouse, Cooper? Albert, this is Sheriff Truman. I have seen some slipshod backwater bergs, but this place takes the cake. What are you waiting for, Christmas? We've got work to do. Damn it, they are putting this girl on the ground tomorrow, and we've wasted half the day traveling out here to the middle of nowhere. Results from the local pathologist report. Welcome to Amateur Hour. And then you have David Lynch's character, who is a nice enough guy, um, but is deaf as a post, and uh, is constantly yelling things. <laughs> yeah. And David Lynch's wonderfully nasally, higher than you might expect voice. Federal Bureau of Investigation, Regional Bureau Chief Gordon Cole. That's a real mouthful, but I can't hear myself anyway. I'm Agent Cooper's supervisor. Albert found fibers in the hall outside of Cooper's room from a Vicuna coat. Coat was Vicuna. Sounds real good, Sheriff, but I already ate. They're fun characters. I love seeing them come in and out. And I think like, in a similar way that you mentioned with with characters like uh, Pete, played by uh, Jack Nance and stuff, I think characters like that, maybe because they, uh, um, they are... For the most part, um, separate from the weirdness of the show, and to a certain extent, the drama, the high dramas of the show, they are sometimes a nice relief from some of the more intense parts of the show, and there's a certain level of, of at least I felt, safeness when they were on screen. I felt kind of like, oh, okay. I feel kind of fine with, with, with them there. Um, so that they, they helped with that, too, beyond just being kind of good characters and funny characters and capable characters and smart characters they were kind of uh, it was it was uh, they felt like safe characters to have around uh, two at times of the main cast i really i i at first i thought she wasn't going to be very um trustworthy because the first episode you're like oh this is the femme fatale and then maybe this one is and then maybe this one is but uh sherry lynn fenn is audrey horn i really came to appreciate yeah. so so much she's very complex and you know, at times alienating, and then at other times, you know, your your heart goes out to her. So, she I thought had a really interesting arc on the show, and as a performance, even when she was being a little bit arch or a little bit, you know, over dramatic, it was part of her character. So it didn't come across as artificial. It, it just it felt like that's who Audrey was as a character. Yeah, and I think that's a good point that's something I wanted to bring up in terms of because I felt similarly in the first episode and I don't know how much of this is 
retconning or just changing the ideas of the character or how much of it was planning in terms of how to develop these people. But uh, the first episode she was in, I felt very much just like uh, she was very, seemed very manipulative and almost seems like the person who would maybe manipulate people and hurt people emotionally and just for her own sick amusement but you kind of develop her character you kind of see like you said the layers of her and you see her develop i think into a better person and a person who is connecting more and a person who i think at first isn't that interested in laurel palmer and is more helping out with in her own way with the investigation in more selfish ways but then becomes more interested in her and and maybe bringing justice to her um than she was initially but I think also one of the things that I like about the show is some of the character development. Even in just the two seasons, that the 30 episodes that we had over the two seasons. Um, and one of the things I'm annoyed the most about with it being cut short and is that, there, especially with one character who I will mention just because of I think it's nice to see that for yourself, but there's one character who um, whose fate is left hanging at the end of the second season. That person is kind of... We don't know if that person will make it through the the jeopardy that that person is in. And that person starts out very unlikable. Very, very, very unlikable and abusive and just hateful and stuff. But I felt like they were trying to take that person into... Maybe this is just my imagination, but it felt like maybe they were trying to take that person into a redemptive sort of arc. And if true, I am annoyed that, again, the show got ended got cut short when it did because I would have loved to see that character from it would have made the rewatching of the show even more rewarding because you would have seen where the character started and seen the dramatic and believable I think transformation into I think a better person and um, I don't think it will be fixed in the return just because of the way that cliffhanger works I don't think it would work with you couldn't really go back to it I think with such a big gap in it and I was surprised too by how the show is able to, to go back and forth, sometimes just progress in general, but also sometimes go back and forth between me liking and disliking a character. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's some points where, like we mentioned with Audrey, where I didn't like her at first, and I grew to like her more as the show went on. And that was pretty steady in terms of likability and stuff. But there's other characters who I liked at first and disliked and liked a little bit more. Like there's the character of Bobby's secret girlfriend who works at the diner. Oh, Shelly. Shelly. Yeah. I liked her at first, and I sympathized with her, but then as the show went on, she gets a bit more manipulative. She kind of, and I think in a very cruel way, kind of mocks the pain of uh, Laurel Palmer's father at her funeral and stuff, which I found very just mean and stuff. But then a little bit after that, I kind of sympathized with her a little bit more, and then I didn't, you know. So, and there's other characters like that, too. Like, uh, Bobby was is really just a dick, and you kind of just want to slap him. <laughs> When the show starts, but at certain points, I liked him a little bit too. So yeah, it was very interesting the way the, the writers and the Mark Frost and David Lynch were able to kind of to show how complex these people are and shift sympathies throughout the run of the show. Yeah, I agree. And this is probably more apparent in season two, which we haven't even really finished talking about season one at <laughs> no. all. But um, that I would say that that's true of uh, the character of Nadine and actually the the relationship between Nadine and Big Ed and Big Ed, you know, kind of secretly being in love with Peggy Lipton's the character. Peggy Lipton character who runs the diner and that kind of love triangle. You know, at first it's very easy to hate Nadine cause she seems completely awful, yeah. but you do kind of come around to feeling empathy for her. Mm-hmm. And I liked the way that the, the show didn't just rely on, Oh, she's the nagging wife. Like, 
she is that, but she's a lot of other things too, right? And there's a lot more complexity there. And all the different storylines, and there are many, yeah. um, all the different storylines, whether it's about the, you know, the plot to take the mill over, or the plot to try to get, you know, the Great Northern away from the Horn family, or a secret prostitution business that's happening over the border in Canada, or, you know, all these different things, right? It, it's it still manages to make some really surprising characters have more development of a character and have more complexity than just, oh, that's the madam or, oh, this is the the drug dealer. Like, there's so much more to them. Even in the course of, like, eight episodes, you get to know a lot of these people and start to understand a little bit more, even if you don't understand why their actions went as far as they did. Like, you can kind of see how their decisions, some of them were a little tougher than you might initially think. So it, it start a, starts to form a picture of why they did what they did and what their motivations were. Well, we should say we kind of have danced around some of the main plot stuff of it, but um, in terms of, yeah, we're not going to give, give away the whodunits of it, but uh, the main, I mean, kind of crux or the, the driving force of the show at first, and we'll get into that a little bit later, at first is the uh, who killed Laurel, Laurel Palmer stuff how did you like that mystery and how it developed and stuff in very lynchian and very disturbing and scary ways at certain points uh but how did you like that and how that was uh, developed uh i liked it a lot mm-hmm. i found it at times like nightmare inducing mm-hmm. um i had a sense i i mean i think it, it sort of uh, this is maybe a slight spoiler but i had a sense early on that there was definitely something not necessarily real world about the show. You know what I mean? Like there might be a supernatural element or there might be something. I wasn't sure if it was going to be like aliens or space time traveler stuff or what. But I All had of the above. Was, you know, it was something like otherworldly. And that, you know, does seem to be the case. Like we learn more about it as it goes on. But it still manages to keep the human drama of it really forefronted even though there are these darker forces at work it still really comes down to the people and yeah i liked that um i liked that it really kept me guessing up until pretty far into the reveal of who it was i was pretty surprised actually yeah i Um, unfortunately i think i had a slight spoiler about who who done it because somebody i think I think because I had typed into Twitter, hey, I'm watching Twin Peaks. We had suggested tweets around and oh, some no. people were saying, hey, this year, this this day on Twin Peaks. And they showed up, showed some stills of a certain character looking menacing. Uh, and I was like, and based on some of the stuff they'd already established, I kind of guessed that that might have been the person who done it. And how, the reasons behind how and why that person was doing, doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was a bit annoying. <laughs> but... Well, before we get more into that, I will say, on your point of the supernatural stuff, there is supernatural stuff in the show, and it doesn't get to it, I think, until the third or fourth episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't actually... For, so again, for the most, for the first few episodes, it's pretty normal, but it does get into some supernatural stuff. And slowly, the second season is a bit more weird than the first season, but I think that's partially because there's more of it. But um, but there is this kind of otherworldly place that Dale, and even, I think, hinted at maybe some of the other characters kind of visit to and visions and dreams and stuff and that this world kind of spills into our world a little bit too of these strange characters who in our world speak normal and their world speak in this kind of weird reversed 
but still understandable way and stuff. You see some Lynch regulars in that world too that you see in other, some of his other movies and projects. But yeah, he builds this intrigue with with this world and what it means and who who are these people or creatures or whatever the hell they are. And even at by the end of the show, you're kind of unclear about some of their motives too. But mm-hmm. but yeah, it's this world I think it's very strange and not fully explained, which I don't think it ever should be fully explained. Um, but that still makes sense and that you can still kind of understand enough to to, to, to like it. Um, and does build a unique, and does help build a unique and, and frightening um, mystery. There's a particular character that I know on Twitter you said was particularly frightening and yes. uh, uh, deservedly so. I won't say who the person is, but what's to say? Uh, I'll just use a few words to describe the person. Uh, denim, lots of denim, long white hair, and a very freaky smile and a way of moving. And a way of just randomly popping up that's oh. like, ah! Yeah, and I think Lynch, one reason I think Lynch, I mean, he didn't direct all these episodes, we should stay, he directed mm-hmm. some here and there. Usually, I would say, if if you see that David Lynch is directing an episode, you can probably bet that one is going to be one of the weirder ones. I think that was always the case yeah. <laughs> with the second, with the first and, with the, with the first few seasons. But um, he has a way, him and I think some of the, and the other directors who were on the show, one of which was Diane Keaton, of all people. Yes, I saw that. Which I found, I don't know, it was one of the random things she's directed. I don't know how that happened. But anyway, uh, she directs the episode in the second season. But anyway, he and the other directors have a very good way of shooting kind of very, not just dreamlike stuff, but stuff that very much feels out of a nightmare. That's scary in the way that nightmares are scary. They're just off and weird. And the way he, they angle shots and stuff, especially with the character that we're talking about, that it's just it's very effective and very frightening definitely i would say and i watch a lot of horror movies but there were certain episodes of the show or even certain scenes that i would say are as scary if not more scary than most horror movies i've seen just because it's like that unsettling feeling of like you're not sure what you're seeing or what context it fits into so that like it it creates that weird you know, disconnect in your brain of like, what is this, right? You don't have a place to put it. Did you feel at all like, and maybe this was just because I was, we we both kind of binged this to different degrees and stuff, but maybe just because I was binging it and kind of, at some points getting impatient or like, I don't really want to watch this today, but I have to, to get it prepared and stuff. I felt like the first season was, I think, a perfect length. It felt like the perfect length. And then it felt like the, the second season maybe was a bit long, so I don't know if maybe this is a show that not only would have done better in terms of how people were reacted to its contents, but would have, since American television is going more of the way of European television, of having shorter seasons where you don't have to have like 20 episodes per year, you can have 8, 10, 12, or whatever. Maybe if that would have done it a little bit better, if maybe smaller, chunky, uh, smaller chunks of seasons would have done the show better than what it had. So I guess this is a good transition into season two, a little bit of the show. I do think season two is excessively long and has some episodes that are entirely padding that do not need to be there. That said, I'm not saying that to shade the show. I enjoy all the characters and even the completely pointless little like huh. turnarounds we go through with most of them, I still find enjoyable. To the... There's one storyline I would definitely be happy to drop. But Is it the Andy one with the the one guy oh no i enjoyed that one the one i would be willing to drop is the the james arc in season two. Oh, and with the oh yeah i really didn't i really hate that, that was story. unnecessary and pointless but i anyway, hated that storyline yeah yeah so i guess we should say so season one wraps up with you still not knowing who killed laura palmer yeah 
you have maybe some suspicions of who you think it might be, but also... Um, and they've dropped hints of people involved in it and sort of a, a, a character that's sort of involved, but there's more to it than just their involvement. Yes. And season season one also ends with several different cliffhangers of characters yes. that we know and love in peril, let's say. So season two opens, and a little bit of that gets resolved or continues on, but then there's, you know, more extended arcs that dive into a little bit further the mystery of Laura, that dive into some of the um, fallout from events that happened late in season one. And then it starts to, again, seem like it's okay, it's going to, you know, go in this other direction of figuring out who killed Laura. And there's a little more information that's being revealed. But um, I guess it's worth saying, like, you don't get all the way through season two not knowing who killed Laura Palmer. No. Like, it does get revealed. Yeah, like, pretty not, early. <laughs> yeah, not even halfway. I won't say exactly where, but not even halfway through the season. It kind of wraps that up. And I have. L- I don't know how you feel about it, but I kind of liked that. Because, one, I thought the whole show was somehow going to stretch that out, even if it had gone through however long, you know, Mark Frost and David Lynch would have wanted to run the show, whether it had been five years, six, seven, whatever it would have been. I thought that would be the main crux of the show throughout the whole thing. But I th- I like the fact that they were brave enough to not have that to the throughout the whole show, or at least apparently. And they did end it fairly. I mean, they spend not tons of episodes on it and they kind of then they move on to other things and um, yeah it was i like if i like that it was brave to move in other directions and make a new status quo and stuff which i which i think too many shows are are too too adherent to status quos um that they this one they just end up resetting things all the time and you never really make much progress which can be very frustrating as a tv viewer i enjoyed the fact that they did that um i've read since watching this, I've read that a lot of people don't like basically anything that comes after. <laughs> some people say season two, episode seven. Some say season two, episode nine. But the general consensus is like once that mystery is is closed, that the show just takes a different turn and a lot of people nope right out of there. I disagree. I do think that certain things happen that are a little silly. Yeah. Um, and certain things happen that are seemingly unrelated and it doesn't necessarily have the same momentum as the Laura storyline, but I still enjoyed seeing our, our characters that we've learned to love in all these new situations and grappling with new challenges or new problems or even new hilarious situations or new love interests. And it mostly, um, mostly works, I think. Yeah. I think, I think part of the problem, well, there's two things. One, while I think they, in some cases accidentally, in some cases purposefully, do set up things that they later expand on and go in uh, when they're going in that new direction partway through season two. Um, I do think part of the problem is that they're so focused on the Laura Palmer storyline. I mean, there are subplots, obviously, throughout, but they're so focused on that as the main plot that when you suddenly go in the other direction, this thing that seemed like it would be, again, the main crux of their whole show, run of the show is now done, it just seems kind of odd and maybe throws people off. And also, I think the Laura Palmer story is so emotionally gripping and interesting in terms of story and plot and the ways they go with it that any other direction, they kind of almost play the best story first, or at least Mm -hmm. of what we saw. I mean, obviously, if the show had gone on, maybe there would have been 
other ones in season three or four or whatever that would have been even better than the little Palmer thing. But it's such a good story. They kind of go in other things. They almost doesn't seem as as good, really. It's like let's have the opening act be Citizen Kane, and then let's go <laughs> to, <laughs> to other things. So right. the other things aren't necessarily bad. They might still be the third man good, but they're not maybe as good just because of in comparison. And I think. It's hard to say. I don't know how much of stuff was planned in season two. I know some stuff like the ending of season two, I think was developed fairly late, but I don't know how much stuff was developed for it. So in some cases, I don't know if maybe it's partially a writing problem too, where I don't know if it's rather just for the reasons I just said, it feels like this, or if it's because it actually is doing this. It does feel like maybe they're trying to find their feet a little bit and they're looking for a new direction as they're going. But maybe not. Maybe that's just my imagination. And they really are just... It's just because of the things I mentioned. It feels like they don't know where they're going, how to develop, where to go after the Lower Palmer mystery is done. So there is stuff in there that in the later second season where they are seeming to find their feet again in yeah. terms of what to go with and what to, fa- to go with. But at the same time, they do feel fairly focused on, okay, this is the new big bad. This is the new main threat. And we're going to develop that and the dangers of it. And it has been slightly set up before. But yeah, I mean, the second season is... Um, I could see why people don't like this post-Laura Palmer stuff as much. But I think partially it suffers just because there wasn't a third season. Yeah. Um, and uh, and further seasons that were directly came directly after that. So one of the things that I feel like was a problem for season two is that... It has a too many villains problem. It has a too many characters problem. And it has a let's try to redeem a bunch of people that were villains or you thought were villains. And so it's like trying to do a little too much. And some of it it does successfully. And some of it I could do without like that James sideline. No, that that the whole, people, who, people who have watched it or eventually will see it. Maybe you'll, you'll understand our frustration yes, with that storyline. Talking just, about Evelyn and, and James and Malcolm. It just, so it, it, it that storyline. Yeah, it just seems so pointless, but anyway. Yeah, and um, the other thing that kind of annoyed me a little in season two was it didn't seem like they really knew what to do with Donna. I felt like Donna was pretty strong in season one. Like she did some things that I felt like were ill-advised, but she's young and like cares about her friend and is sort of stupid and naive. And then in season two, I feel like at times she forgot a lot of the lessons she should have learned in season one by being in danger so many times. And like, makes decisions that I just don't understand. Well, and also she does this annoying thing that they'll do in movies Especially in romantic and oh god, lazy romantic comedies, Ugh. Um, where you know she gets part of a conversation or she comes in part, like at the very end of an interaction between characters, and then she just makes the entire she just assumes she knows everything about what she just witnessed. Right. And it's just like just talk to people, talk to right. your parents, talk to your friends, just talk to people instead of just making these wild assumptions. And being all freaking moody and, oh, my God, she really annoyed me at certain points. Yeah, it was funny because, of course, I've, like, I've watched Wayne's World I don't know how many times, right? And so <laughs> in my mind, like, Laura Flynn Boyle is the psycho hose beast. And I've always known, like, that's just a silly character she played. <laughs> there were times in season two I was like, stop being a psycho hose beast. Like maybe that inspired Wayne's World a little bit. I don't just, know. Just move, just move on and get interested in somebody else. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh, I uh, wanted to love her. I really loved Donna the first season, but I still, 
I still what sympath- are you doing? I still sympathized her at uh, certain points. It's just, again, she does jump to conclusions a bit too much and stuff. And again, she has a communication problem. I mean, look, she did just lose her best friend. Like, that's pretty yeah. traumatic. I get it. She's uh, probably yeah. going to act out. But it just seemed like there was such a turn from how she was in the first season to the second. I, I don't know. It just didn't work for me. But I that think, aside, yeah. I did really still like most of the the main characters that had been established. And then, you know, some of the new people that they brought in. Again, this might be a slight spoiler, I guess. But David Duchovny plays a character... <laughs> That I did not expect, and I was quite delighted by. David Duchovny in the show, he guest stars in a handful of episodes in um, the second season, where he plays, surprise, surprise, an FBI agent uh, who is not... I, I almost, part of me almost wished when I saw his name in the opening credits of that the episode, first episode he was in, I'm like, this would be kind of great if this was like an X-Files crossover. I thought the same thing! I was like, this is a perfect X-Files! Even though this was before, I think, because I think X-Files was, what, 93 or something? Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, I thought that would be kind of really wonderful. But David Duchovny in the show plays in a handful of episodes an FBI agent who I think is the drug enforcement branch or something like that. Yeah, I think the DEA. Yeah, it deals with, anyway. I liked his character in multiple ways. I had some issues with how they handled it, but one thing I liked about it, the character was that he plays a she in terms of, of, he plays a transgender woman in the show. And I, what I liked about that was that they, even though it's 1990, 1991 or so, and the show, we should say, takes place in 1989, um, over the course of, I think by the end of season two, um, it's probably only been a month, month and a half. Right. Or so. It's a very strict timeline. Time. So the show takes place in the late 80s. The show was done in the, late, or in the early 90s. But despite the fact that I like that Lynch and the writers and stuff, for the most part, uh, treated that character respectfully. Even Dale, particularly, uh, when the character gives the new the, the the new name, which I think is Denise. Yes, I think Denise. 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 Uh, Dale was just like, oh, okay, hi, hi, Denise, and then he just you know whatever, and he does use the wrong name at one point, but then he's corrected. He's like, oh, sorry, and then he uses the right name, and then um, so the most part, it's it's I think done respectfully. I think there is a bit too many. It's a guy in women's clothing. Sure. Type, type jokes. Which a little I, bit dated looking back at it now, but I felt like for its time... It was pretty aggressive, um, I thought. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, I thought it was pretty respectful overall. Like, you're right. At times, you can tell they're leaning into, it's David Duchovny in a dress. But, like, it's still... It, it is a fully fleshed out character with, a you know, a small arc, but, like, a, a very good arc. Yeah. I, I thought it was a good portrayal overall. So I guess we'll talk just a little bit about the second big bad in the show, which mm-hmm. is Wyndham Earl. That's not really a spoiler because you find out fairly early on that he used to be Cooper's partner and that somewhere along the way he went off the rails, right? Yeah. He was in a mental institution. He's escaped. Now we don't know what he's going to do, but it seems like it will be bad. Mm-hmm. And long story short, it is bad. So yeah. what did you think about that character? I liked him. Well, there's some interesting things about that. Some things I liked and didn't like. I do like how capable he was. Maybe some senses he's a bit too... He does a lot of cackling, you know, sure. maniacal laugh stuff, which I found annoying after a while. But stuff I do like about him, how capable he was. How, I think, believable he disguises himself a lot mm-hmm. in the show, so he's not recognized by people in town, especially by Dale. And I think those are... I mean, I'm not a disguise expert, so I don't know if they're actually accurate in terms of how you would properly disguise yourself if you were 
doing that sort of thing. But it seems more believable than you would see in most TV and movies. I like how he, in some, in a lot of ways, he's really ahead of the main characters throughout most of the his run of episodes. But I would say something I didn't like about him, or some, or one, uh, some things that were frustrating. I would say one thing: there was this kind of chess theme. Mm-hmm. Um, that Dale mentions that uh, Dale, you know, would play a game of chess with him every day when they were agents. He never won one and stuff. So at one point they have Jack Nance's character, who is supposed to be, is revealed to be this great chess player. They enlist him to help kind of plan the moves. Who's kind of playing an actual game of chess, but with also with real people and stuff, and people are getting killed and stuff. So he, uh, Dale, and the sheriff enlists Jack Nance's character Pete's help do this chess game. And I like that idea. For one, it showed more of Pete, which I liked. It showed this other side of him, which I liked. It showed him being smart, which I liked, and strategic, which I liked, and stuff. What I found frustrating is that by the end of that run of episodes, the chess scene is kind of pointless. Yeah. They kind of forget about it, and the Jack Nance stuff just kind of drops off, and I really was wishing they would develop that more. Or even if I was expecting it to be like they would do, like, maybe, you know, Jack Nance is helping him throughout this whole thing, but then by the end of it, it's just up to Dale to finish this chess thing and stuff. Whether it be the real-life chess game or just an actual chess game he plays with Windermoral or something, I thought would be fine. But they didn't do that, and the chess thing just kind of drops off and gets forgotten, which I find frustrating. I'm glad that they brought someone in who was on Cooper's level in terms of intelligence, because Uh otherwise the show did run the risk of kind of being in, like, Superman territory of, like, you know that Cooper has the answers and is going to figure things out. He's too smart not to, so... How are you going to find ways to keep things interesting and keep him kind of keep that sense of peril or that sense of danger up and keep a suspenseful thing going? And so I liked the idea of he does have somebody that used to be a mentor and is now kind of turned the other way and how he's going to put a stop to him when this guy is, is at least as smart, if not smarter than Cooper, which seems hard to imagine from all we've seen before. But there were certain times and I don't want to give specific examples because I don't want to spoil anything, but there were certain times where it was like, come on, like, Cooper, you have to be seeing through this, right? And so I was a little bit annoyed because I felt like the show, instead of making his partner, you know, Wyndham Earl, instead of making him super, super intelligent, they sort of dumbed down Cooper at it a few times, and that bothered me a bit. Yeah, I mean, he is kind of, I mean, as you mentioned that stuff, he is kind of the Moriarty to his homes, in a way. Yes, uh, totally. But yeah, I mean, there's certain stuff, like there's one, I won't say what it is, but there was a certain way that uh, Wyndham Earl is, is keeping a wind of what the good guys are up to, which... I debate whether the good guys should have caught on to that earlier than they did or not. Right. But it seems like... really, uh, And then it also just seemed kind of forced that they all happened to be around the particular way that Windermore was keeping adrift of what was going on with them mm-hmm. when they were having big, important exposition and plot points. It's like, really? Like, you would really be doing this thing in this particular place you wouldn't be doing it in another area or something it just seemed a bit right a bit forced in a way and very kind of annoying but no i think it's a nice it is a nice change of pace from the other big bad who was kind of an unknowable thing throughout most of it even when it's revealed it's still kind of an unknowable thing but we have a kind of a specific thing to kind of love to hate yeah in the second half and something that can theoretically be defeated. Yeah. Um, although I emphasis on the theoretically, because if you're looking for a show that gives you closure, at least at the end of season two, 
Uh, sorry, but you weren't going to get away. Yeah, well, we should... Oh, God. Okay, we should, I should... I mean, I don't know if we're getting into the specifics of the last episode yet or not. We're not... Well, we're not going to get into the specifics of it at all, but in terms, we'll talk about it more maybe at some point. But um, I will say this... You might go into this season two if you know that it ended originally at season two. Even if you know there's a movie afterward, you know there's a revival afterward, you might think that, oh, maybe they knew partway through they were getting canceled and they tried to wrap things up partway through. Oh, uh, they don't. Um, yeah. It's very obvious that this was... It's designed to hopefully have a season three afterward. There's a lot of, of hanging threads there. It's really a big cliffhanger. Well, I'm excited to see how much of it will be resolved in season three so yeah you know that that didn't happen for years and years and years but i'm still curious to know if they do resolve any of these plot lines that are i know at least one of them probably will be uh continued if not directly answered well one of them was have to be because of yeah who's involved with it yeah i'm i'm just super curious to see you know how this many years later with some of the people not able to return and some of the storylines, you know, maybe they chose not to continue. I'm curious to see how that's going to go. So we have a whole other season ahead of us. But before we get to that season, we have to go back in time. talk about Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me, which was a movie released in 1992 that was a prequel to the TV show. Mostly. Mostly. <laughs> um, prequel <laughs> slash, well, I don't even know how to explain it exactly. We'll get into um, that probably, but anyway. <laughs> we'll get there. So when we first start out in Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me, we're not in Twin Peaks. We are seeing Chris Isaac who I love as FBI agent Chester Desmond. And then you also have uh, another unexpected people. <laughs> so yeah, um, some nice casting surprises here, right? So if you are a 24 fan, yeah. um, you will be happy to know that uh, the main star of 24 does appear in the show. So yes, you have that to look forward to. But yeah, so there's there's the side story of someone who has been murdered. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a girl in a small town who, you know, people said they didn't know a lot about her, but maybe she had a drug problem, maybe not. It was mysterious circumstances. It definitely seems like the the police department in this town is much less cooperative than Twin Peaks was. And so yeah, uh, that's how it kind of starts. We do get to see a little bit of Agent Cooper in his, I, I assume, his home office. And, and we do get to see David Lynch again as uh, Chief Gordon Cole. And um, we also have a momentary appearance by David Bowie, which I was very excited about, yeah. but sad that it wasn't longer. Well, yeah, we'll get into that too, I think. So there's definitely a lot of cool casting decisions here. And then that's that's sort of the beginning part. That sets the stage. And then certain events transpire and we move on to Twin Peaks a year later. And the year later is basically the week before uh, Laura Palmer's death. So the week before the show proper starts. Correct. 
And so we spend that week primarily with Laura. Yeah. And her character, you know, goes through mostly pretty bad, pretty tough yeah. stuff. It's um, much more serious. The, uh, the first part of the movie is a little bit funny, but the, the second part is much more yeah, the, the first, and much heavier. Yeah, the, the prologue with the investigation um, into the other death, which I think is mentioned in the first season of the show, that the other it death is, and yeah. the stuff. And there's a thing we'll talk about mentioned later that in terms of stuff that was cut that kind of and changes that were made with the movie and development that kind of create some continuity hiccups. But anyway, we'll get to that. But yeah, the first like 30, 40 minutes, I think well more like 30 minutes is this kind of prologue. And that is a little bit more in tune with the tone of the show in terms of serious stuff, but also some jokey fun stuff too and some weird stuff. But yeah, the most of the rest of the two fifteen runtime is, um, is pretty damn uh, serious. <laughs> Yeah, it's it gets very bleak and your heart just breaks for Laura and what she went through before, you know, we meet her and what she, we know yeah. she is facing as a, her fate. Because it's basically and, um it's, yeah. it's basically the you're seeing the who done it of it. You're right. seeing that play out basically. Yeah. So don't watch the movie before you watch the show if you want I guess uh, that part to be a surprise. No, there's a lot of stuff. It's, yeah. We'll, it's we'll, a prequel, but don't watch it first. The movie was, I was reading about, was intended to be like the first of like a trilogy or something of films oh, that okay. were supposed to, David Lynch was hoping to use it as kind of uh, to explore a certain, the, the uh, some of the more supernatural aspects of it and the mythology of that specific as you know, Rosalie, the place, the, the thing that's a big factor at the end of sec- season two, explore that a bit more. Mm-hmm. and stuff and I think originally it was supposed to I think somebody reading online that one reason the the movie Firework With Me in some ways is incoherent as it is is because they were going to follow up with certain stuff they were going to do the prequel and then actually have sequels that actually were going to take place after the events of season 2 and it should be mentioned all the characters most of the characters who were in the show filmed stuff for the movie most of them were cut out. There's a Twin Peaks compilation movie that's like 90 minutes long called Twin Peaks, The Missing Pieces, where you see, I don't know exactly how this works in terms of structuring and stuff, but it shows all these deleted scenes with all the characters that were cut out, like Jack Nance's character, the sheriff character, basically everybody who works at the sheriff's office were in it. I think all but three actors returned for the movie. There was Ben Horn's character who was written into the script, but was cut out because the actor didn't want to do it because of certain a certain scene that was in the movie that was in the script that he didn't feel was right for the character. The actress who played Audrey, who I don't know if is in return or the return or not, but she was taking, she had, I guess, certain issues. I don't know what they were with season, how the way season two developed. So she didn't want to do the movie. And then Donna's character is in the movie, but Laura Flynn Boyle does not play her. I guess it was originally rumored because there were some nude scenes that they, she didn't want to do or something. But then later, I think she said that it was just because she was doing like four other movies at the time or something. Ah, I didn't okay. have time. I, and who knows what that, you know, that stuff can, what the reason was but for whatever reason she didn't do it so different actress plays her character who i've seen the actress in other things but it was very odd since most everybody else is played by the same actor but anyway there's certain characters who originally were going to get more to do like i think originally dale was going to have a bigger part in the movie obviously you can only have it and him in it so much because of the prequel aspect of it but i think kyle mclaughlin was i guess worried about being typecast so he was hesitant i think mm-hmm. hesitant to do the movie at all but then david lynch I think convinced him to do it. And I think the original, I think in the show, they might suggest, I think Dale even says that he was the one who investigated the thing at the beginning of the movie. But I think, yeah. I think he would have been the person in the movie instead of that other agent character. But because Kyle McLaughlin didn't want to have as big of a part in it, 
they wrote somebody else into that. And I don't know if he would have appeared more in other parts of it, but I think especially at the beginning, it would have just been Dale, which in some ways makes sense. There's certain Dale qualities to that character. But um, there are. Yeah. In some ways, I feel like Dale is both <laughs> both the Kiefer Sutherland character and the Chris Isaac character yeah, kind of I, matched into one. Yeah, I would have wondered if that still would have been Kiefer Sutherland if it remained. But anyway, Dale is mainly at the FBI, mainly the FBI office, mostly. He's somewhere else that we can't reveal because of spoilery reasons. But anyway, he was going to have a bigger part. David Bowie was going to have a bigger part. Um, basically, there's a lot in the movie that was cut out. But how did you feel... B- getting past all that stuff and the kind of behind the scenes stuff of the movie and what they did do and what they weren't able to do um, in terms of, because I think again, they were originally hoping to make it a series of films that would wrap up the show. Uh, I didn't know all that stuff. Actually. I hadn't really, I've been trying to avoid reading about twin peaks for like my whole film loving life because I didn't want any spoilers. Yeah, well, I've been amazingly managed to, to do. Well, I've been looking stuff up about the original, not so much about the show, just because I didn't know how much of it it was going to talk about stuff that was in the, Revi- the Return, which I haven't gotten to yet, which I'm trying to avoid stuff for that. But anyway, ignoring, yeah, again, the behind-the-scenes stuff of, of the movie, I was worried going into it because I learned fairly while I was watching the show, I somehow read somewhere when I was looking up something about Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me, somehow I, I learned that it was a prequel, which I didn't mm-hmm. know it was going to be. And one, I was initially worried because I thought, oh, is it just going to be like... Like I, I, it, I thought it would be what it ended up being, which was the lead up. What you know, you've seen what happens to Laura Palmer and stuff. Right. And partially, I was worried. Like, and I was like, well, does that mean Dale's not going to be in it? Because like, kind of, I don't know how I feel if Dale's not in the movie at all. And it turns out he is in the movie. But also, I just kind of felt like I don't know how you, if you felt the same way. I kind of felt like, is there much like point in showing this? Because I never, when I was watching the show, I just feel like what they show and don't show, and what they just do in exposition is enough and is more in fitting with Lynch anyway. And so I just felt like I didn't, I mean, there'll be some positives of the movie, which we'll certainly get to, but I just partially felt like I didn't know if the, if the movie really needs to exist. So I didn't know anything about like the reaction to the movie, production of the movie, whatever. I just knew that this show had been canceled and then this movie was made. So when I went into it, it was, only knowing like the events inside the show and that's it. So with that in mind, the first part of it, I was like, okay, how is this going to connect? How is this going to connect? And then they get to Twin Peaks and there's very tenuous connection and they don't really get back to the preamble stuff except for what we know happens in the show and how they solve that murder. And I wasn't as crazy about the first part of the movie, but I found myself really transfixed by everything that happens in Twin Peaks and seeing it from Laura's perspective. And the reason that I think I connected to it so much is that so many movies and so many TV shows have this trope of killing off usually a young, beautiful mm-hmm. female character. And that's the the motivation for everybody else in the story. And I liked that this one took the time to let us get to know Laura mm-hmm. as a person. Granted, she still has all these troubles, but it's, letting you see that inner soul that tortured as it may be and not have her just be a pretty face that was murdered. So everybody else could have something to do. Do you know the term uh, women in refrigerators? Yes, I do. Yeah. So for people who don't know that, that was a phrase that was coined by uh, then, I think just the writer of comic books, but then later writer of them, uh, Gail Simone, who's been critically acclaimed and all that stuff. She was writing about a storyline and I think it was a green lantern comic where basically the main character, the Green Lantern, a bad guy uh, kills his love interest 
in the movie in the movie in the in the, one of the storylines in that comic book really purely in terms of uh, plot reasons and character reasons purely to motivate him the green lantern and women in refrigerator part comes in the fact that he puts her in the woman in the love interest in a refrigerator or something and kills her that way or whatever and gail simone the comic book writer wrote about that as basically being a bad trope of i think well fiction in general of what you just said rosalie of of using especially women of and doing horrible things to them, whether it be maiming them or killing them or raping them or whatever, purely for the male storyline. But yeah, I like the fact that... One of the things I do like about the fact that is they do humanize her. And I like the fact that... Uh, I think the actress is Cheryl Lee, who plays Laura. And they do give her some stuff to do, especially during the Laurel Palmer days of the show. Less so after that. But they do give her some stuff to do, even though her character is technically dead. But I like the fact that she was given time to shine. As I mean, she's top build in the movie and is really the main character of that. I like that they gave her stuff to do because you can see how, while in certain cases, I think there was a bit much in terms of her performance. For the most part, she, she gives this very good performance that is very intense of this 18 year old high school person who, again, like you said, what we said on the surface seems to have this idyllic perfect life and she's homecoming queen and she does meals on wheels and gives, you know, takes food to people and stuff, but has this very dark undercurrent of her life and stuff. And is, is this very broken person who, as one character alludes to in the show, is really screaming for help and people rather aren't listening or they aren't quite understanding the extent of which she needs help. And you get to see that in the movie of just of the great emotional toll she is going through. Um, and Cheryl Lee does a great job of that. And one of the things I do like about the movie is that it, it gives her cha- that actress um, a chance to shine and get the spotlight. Yeah, I thought Cheryl Lee did a phenomenal job with the character. And even when she has to play her at her least likable moments, does such a great job of embodying her and feeling like a real person who just is dealing with so much that she's just she's broken and she's coping in whatever ways she can. The other thing I'll say is I actually I mean, no shade to Laura Flynn Boyle, but I actually really liked Moira Kelly as Donna. I thought that her Donna, in some ways, I like her better than the show version, at least season two version of the show. <laughs> um, I thought she w- she had very, like, searching eyes, I guess is the best way I could put it. And so yeah. she she just comes across as, like, she's out of her depth, which anybody in this situation would be. Her best friend is obviously going through something, but she's never quite sure how to help or what to do. And... You know, she feels like she's losing her friend. She's trying to impress her by, you know, drinking or or trying to, like, be as cool and as bad as her. But she's not that person at all. And, you know, she she just really plays that character with the right tone, I felt, that was believable. But, you know, again, like, gets in over her head and doesn't quite know Mm -hmm. how to to act in these situations. And I thought that Moira Kelly did a great job of picking up a character that we'd already, like, gotten to know so, so well that a lot of people could have turned it, you know, into either just a a Laura Flynn Boyle kind of caricature or be totally different. But I thought she did a really good job of making it her own. Yeah, I think part of the problem is just because we saw, you know, I mean, she's not in every episode, but, you know, 30 (laughs) episodes worth of Laura Flynn Boyle doing it. So it was, especially since Donna in the movie is not given tons to do, you don't see tons of her in it. Mm -hmm. It's hard for her to establish the character as her own because for me it was just constantly distracting that it wasn't Laura Flynn Boyle so I, I mean she doesn't do anything particularly bad in the movie it's just because of 
reestablishing that was just a bit difficult, and you have to re-get into the character and stuff, and she doesn't get, get a lot of time to do that. How do we feel about... So we mentioned this movie is... It is mostly a prequel to to the show. Oddly enough, though, there are sequel elements to it in these kind of time-travel-y type things yeah. that are very interesting that really work if you have seen the show. But how did you feel about some of those sequel elements, which pretty much all revolve around Dale, really? How did you feel about those being inserted into it? Did you find them intrusive? Did you kind of like it, that kind of mixture of prequel-sequel thing? or? I liked it, but I also felt like that particular thread left me wanting because of the nature of the cliffhanger at the end of season two. It's just (laughs) left me with more questions. And so I am okay with the fact I wouldn't want, I really wouldn't have wanted a movie without Dale, but at the same time, I sort of feel like in some ways it gave him like a little too much. He seemed like he had a little too much information compared to how his character was when he first started on the show yeah those elements so, yeah that was perplexing yeah there was but. there's certain like you said there's certain continuity hiccups one is just one is the thing we mentioned they cast a new character and something that dale was probably supposed to be originally involved with but then there's stuff with dale particularly that's a bit it, dale and to a certain extent not even so much david lynch's character but albert's character in the show is at one point where he gets maybe a little bit more on board with it near the end of season two he is very much not into the hocus pocus type stuff that Dale is into, and uh, it's kind of like, yeah, okay, you go do your meditating and vision stuff. That's that's nice, but he doesn't really believe in that sort of stuff. But there's certain weird stuff that happens at the beginning of the movie that Miguel Ferrer's character is present for that you would think, well, why isn't he more believing of this stuff than he is? Right, a bit of a problem. And then Dale is a little bit too much. While Dale's always had this kind of he believes in stuff maybe a lot of people don't believe in, you don't really get the sense that he has a lot of firsthand not, uh, experience with it. But in the movie, while some of his Dale's appearances in the movie can be construed as quote-unquote present-day Dale, which I think it is supposed to be present-day him, as in end-of-season-two Dale, Yes. I think some of the early stuff with Dale's in, interactive supernatural stuff, especially with a certain character of small stature, <laughs> it's it's like, well, but it seems like in the show, that was the first time he interacted with that person. Right. So why is he, it just seems a bit, it doesn't quite work. It seems a bit of rewriting of history a little bit that I don't know if it would have made more sense if they had done the, the sequel movies that they wanted to do. I mean, I think the Dale sequel stuff would have made more sense if this in the sequel movies, but some of that stuff doesn't quite work. I think with the show. And in some ways I felt like it was more fun to learn about Dale as he investigated the case versus seeing him prior to taking on the whole twin peaks. I liked kind of getting that in little drips and drabs, but that's just me. I would still say overall, I really love the movie. I think it's helpful to think of the movie and the show as two separate things, because if I think about them in comparison, there's just too much, like you said, continuity stuff that doesn't make sense. The tone is very, very different. The other thing that's very strikingly different is the show, as we mentioned, aired on ABC. So network television, The movie is R-rated, and it is yeah. a hard R. I yeah. mean, hard R. Like, you would not want to put this on with any sensitive family members in the room. No, um, it's... it's, it's th- 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 Yes. I mean, it's not like... 
it's not like gory or something. There was more violence in it, particularly there's one point where you see some insides of a person. It's not as graphic as you could go, but it is more graphic and intense with some of the sexual assault type elements of it. And yes, like Rosalie said, though, if if you are sensitive to things that involve rape and sexual assault, do not watch this movie. Unless you think it could be healthy to get that out. I know Cheryl Lee, uh, I was reading that she had interacted, people had come up had come up to her over the years to talk about not just sex, the sexual assault they had had, but that without ruining things, that particular type of sexual assault that she, uh, Laura, ex- experiences in the movie, to come up to her and talk to her about, Shirley, the actors, about how that helped them personally, having been survivors of that sort of thing wow. and stuff. So I do think, it, in some ways, it could probably be like cathartic and stuff, but just be careful um, with it. It is very intense, like we've said, so um, right. um, just be careful with that sort of thing. But I think... The way you mentioned, though, that they're kind of separate entities. I know I was reading one thing on Letterboxd and somebody I follow on there that they were saying how they very much, I think, like you and I did, watch, originally watched Firewalk with me right after they watched the show for the first time. And they didn't terribly gel with it because, you know, it's a different tone. It's a bit, you know, the focus is a bit different. And it's just, like I said, different. Um, but then they watched it again years later and they gelled with it a lot more as kind of more of a movie of just about Laura and like we've said this the story about this very broken very tra- traumatized young woman and so maybe that's why you and I I think other people should maybe view the movie as this kind of story about sexual assaults and and dark sides of people that's just kind of told through a Trim Peaks lens with Trim Peaks elements and seeds for stuff they didn't actually get to at least not in the ways yeah. that they were originally hoping that's a good way to think about it. I will say, too, um, in the show, but I feel like even more so in the movie, I feel like we have to talk about the music. Angelo Badalamenti's score is just incredible for both. It's so memorable. If you've ever heard it, you know exactly what we're talking about. And I also loved the musical performances in the show yeah. of Julie Cruz, which were just otherworldly, like absolutely gorgeous. You can see why in the show and perhaps even in real life, like if I were witnessing it, people in the audience when she performs like have tears in their eyes and yeah. have a very strong reaction to it.
yeah, David Lynch is, is certainly a big fan of people singing at mics and clubs. Yes, he is. He's done that in it was this. He does it in Blue Velvet, Mulholland Drive, Drive, uh, El, uh, sort of. Yeah. Uh, he's a big yeah. David Lynch is a big music person. This is again mostly a prequel. Do you think in any circumstance somebody should watch this before the show? I'm gonna say no. Yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> because I don't think you would watch this and then want to necessarily watch the show because you might think, okay, I already know like who did it, yeah, who what did it. happened. Yeah, and well, yeah, and it does ruin explicitly the who done it of the first part of the show, and then it gives hints to stuff that you well, you probably can't really quite figure it out, really. But some hints, some stuff that happens at the end of season two, it does kind of give hints to that a little bit. But also, I think I would be really curious to talk to somebody who did watch this first, especially mm-hmm. if it was in theaters. Because I think while you could follow this as a movie, certain stuff is less effective and makes less sense. Not yeah. even in a David Lynch way, it just doesn't make as much sense. Some characters, it just they're introduced in a way that you feel like you should already know who they are, basically for all the characters that are that are from the show, that are in the movie. And then certain stuff like seeing the Twin Peaks sign, when you finally get to Twin Peaks, and hearing the Twin Peaks theme is it's much more i got kind of happy at that moment but that was mm-hmm. only because i had seen twin peaks the show so hearing that again seeing the sign and stuff was more emotional but then you see certain characters the supernatural ones particularly who if you haven't seen the show if you have seen the show you're like oh that's that person that's that person and this is kind of the world they're in this is the place that they're at and stuff but then if you watch just the prequel movie it's kind of like who are these people? What's going right. on? What is this place that they're in? Wait, what is Kyle MacLachlan doing in this place? What, what is he talking about? And stuff. So I think part of the problem with the movie, and probably one reason why it was not critically well liked at all when it came out, it, it's since gotten a better appraisal, but it was not a critical uh, audience success either. I think partially because it doesn't. I almost wonder if this would have been better as like a TV movie type thing, because mm-hmm. at least it would have been in the same medium. I think making it a movie, and it's not really, it's so much of it is predicated on having seen the show first. And so it's not terribly standalone. I think that does hurt it just as a movie. Yeah, I would love to know if, it, you know, talk to people that have just seen the movie, but I can't imagine watching it and, and like not having seen the show and maybe... Maybe there are people that loved it on its own merits, but I feel like it would be kind of frustrating if you didn't have yeah. the context of the show. Yeah, like I wouldn't show my wife this first. Like she would no. be very confused and stuff and not enjoy it as much. Going back to the show that we have seen so far anyway, season two, one of the plot lines it leaves you on, the, the things it leaves you hanging on is a big like, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And while the movie kind of follows up on that a little, 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 little bit, it doesn't really give you answers to that. So if you end season two and you want answers to it in a satisfying way, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer. Right. It more confirms something than answers any questions. Yeah, it does give a bit more idea of what happened, sort of. But yeah, I am excited to see the return and see how they continue some of these things the best they can with being such a long gap. And I know some things are just going to have to drop because it just doesn't work, but with such a long gap. But I'm excited to see it and excited to see how it ties in with Firewalk with me. Okay, so to move on from Twin Peaks-related uh, mumbo-jumbo, um, we're going to talk about some new releases before we wrap up, or some coming soons, I should say. Probably both. From Criterion, for Jane Campion fans, uh, The Piano is going to be released in the end of January, January 25th. In February, they're going to do Written on the Wind um, by Douglas Sirk. There's going to be Miller's Crossing, Love Affair, Leo McCary, and then uh, Boat People, which I'm unfamiliar with. 
I will say too, as we record this and as you're listening to this, their first 4K releases are about to come out or are coming out. Citizen Kane being one of them, Uncut Gems being another. And for David Lynch fans, Mulholland Drive will be released by this point. So I am excited for a new release of uh, Jackie Chan's Armor of God, which is coming out on 88 Films, which is a British distributor. And this one, it should actually be out as we speak because it looks like it came out on November 15th, but I don't know if it'll be in stores stateside or if you'll have to order it online. But in any case, Armor of God is, uh, if you're not familiar, is a 1986 Jackie Chan movie. And it's kind of a Indiana Jones type of storyline. Basically, Jackie Chan plays a former musician who gets into this dangerous quest seeking out lost treasure called the Armor of God. And, of course, he also has to save someone from the clutches of a ruthless cult. So sounds very compelling. It is definitely inspired a little bit by Indiana Jones. And it sounds like this is going to be a really nice restoration as well. It'll be 4K. And um, some new audio commentaries. There's a new feature called The Art of the Action with Scott Adkins, who if you're an action fan, Scott Adkins is like, you know, the god of action these days. Jackie Chan interview and various like talk show appearances and, and short films and archival footage. So lots of cool stuff on this one. It looks like a really beautiful presentation as well from a packaging standpoint. So I'm excited to get my hands on this. And then... Uh, in keeping with November, one that's coming out from Kino, Kino Lorber, is Shake Hands with the Devil, which stars James Cagney, Don Marie, Dana Winter, Glennis Johns, and Michael Redgrave. And this one is not coming out until January, but I'm still counting down the days. And it looks like it's going to be a very interesting movie. I haven't actually seen it, but I know that it has a very good reputation, and I always like what Kino does with their restoration. So... Being a big James Cagney fan, I'm very excited for that one. And then uh, the last thing I'll talk about is the Sylvia Crystal uh, 1970s collection Blu-ray, and this is coming from Cult Epics. And I'm not super familiar with this label, but it definitely seems like an interesting compilation. So basically, this is all about a character named Sylvia, or I should say Sylvia Crystal. She plays a character in these uh, very interesting films. There's Dutch films in here. There's kind of some absurdist kind of dramas in it. And it, it all looks very intriguing. I don't know a ton about it, but I'm super interested in seeing more about it. And if you know the name Sylvia Crystal, it's probably because you know that she starred as Emmanuel in that series of films. So definitely looking forward to that one as well. As we discussed, there have been, happily and annoyingly, a lot of sales of boutique stuff lately. I know Kino has done some lately, and then obviously Criterion as, as you know, does their annual November 50% off sale with Barnes & Noble. And um, Wesley and I have stuff we've uh, either picked up or want to pick up. Um, I So far, I did stuff with both Kino and Criterion. For the Criterion sale, I got High Sierra. Um, starring uh, Ida Lupino and Humphrey Bogart. For those who might remember, this was something that I was hoping they would release for a long time, and uh, they did finally do their uh, version of it, which I was very happy with. And the first two volumes of the Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project, which I'm very excited to dive into. And then the final two things that I will probably have gotten, also on topic for David Lynch, I got Blue Velvet and the 4K release of Mulholland Drive, which sadly uh, comes with the Blu-ray. I cannot actually watch the 4K version yet because I don't actually have a player. So 
I have to eventually get a player so I can actually fully enjoy that. So I am uh, hoping to get, before the month is up, a number of the Criterion collection items that are currently on sale at both Barnes & Noble and, I noticed, Amazon is matching that price for, at least last I checked, they're doing it for both Criterion and they're doing Arrow. So if you're a big Arrow fan, definitely check that out. And I think Arrow, um, uh, Barnes & Noble's, I think a lot of them right now are doing displays of Arrow stuff. And I got something recently for my wife. I got her for her birthday, The Last Starfighter, which Arrow did, and that was 50% off as well. I don't know if that's going to continue past November or how long that's going to last, but do check out your Barnes & Noble. It's a good time for picking up anything for, you know, Christmas lists or other gift giving that you might want to do for people that love movies. But yes, so for things that I want to purchase, I absolutely plan to pick up the new Mona Lisa because Mm -hmm. as I have probably harped on way too much already on this show, I absolutely love that movie and I've been dying because it was out of print. So I had only seen it on the channel and now it is in beautiful physical release. So I'm definitely getting that. And a couple other movies that... Um, I watched recently on the channel as part of the neo-noir collection that was out this summer, and some of them are still on the channel. But two that really struck me were The Hit and also The American Friend. And so those are two that are on my list of high priorities to purchase. Okay, before we wrap up, um, the stuff that's coming up um, the next few months, December, we're going to do seasonally appropriate movies, Gold Diggers of 1933 and Flying Down to Rio. And then for January, uh, we're going to be talking about the films of Ozu, who is a Japanese filmmaker. We still don't know exactly what films we're going to be talking about for his. There's quite a uh, few to pick from in terms of what's being released. But uh, hopefully by next month, the next episode, we should have that figured out. And then in February, as always, we're hoping to do um, something for Black History Month. Um, As always, that's going to be dependent on getting a guest. But in the meantime, you can check out our parent site, uh, 25 Years Later, at 25yearslater.com. And it's Twitter account at 25YL site. You can also check me out at my Twitter account at CinemaPackRat which has links to uh, my YouTube channel which will have something maybe related to this topic in the coming period. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Rosalie Lewis. You can also find my writing and occasional podcast on fthismovie.com You can also uh, check out a recent episode of the Film Feast podcast where I Join the host of that show to talk about true romance from Tony Scott. But I think until uh, next month, we will catch you guys later.